we're going to be looking at the film, The Greatest Showman. If you guys don't know about it, it's a fictional biopic about P.T. Barnum, who uh, was originator of the American Traveling Circus. And Barnum, his life was made for a movie, but even the movie itself has uh, an interesting life. The movie itself, it started off with a, in Christmas, it, was, it released, released on Christmas, and it started off with an absolute thud. Like, people, critics hated this movie. No one really enjoyed it. Like, the numbers were really low. And then the weeks following that, uh, momentum started picking up. And the box office sales actually increased in the weeks after that. Which, for us as, like, students of our culture, we have to ask, why? Why is this the case? What is it about this message that's speaking to people and so for me, as I watch this movie, there's three, main, there's three main messages within this movie. And so I broke up the sermon today in three different acts. Uh, and perhaps today, one of these messages is for you. So let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. We thank you, Jesus, for being a, uh, someone who taught us to live in this world, to speak in the way that this world speaks, to love in such a way that is attractive to people, uh, to bring about truth and goodness and beauty from things in this world. So I pray, Lord, as we, as we study uh, your scripture, as we consider this film, that we would be ex- our hearts would be expanded, our minds would be expanded about the good news of Jesus. And I pray even now for us that you would Awaken our imagination to what you might want to say and do in our life today. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Act 1, Act 1 is imagination. Barnum's most incredible ability that he seemed to have was the incredible ability of imagination. He had a knack to see things that were beneath the surface. He had an ability to see things that were often misunderstood and mis, uh, mis, misconceived. And he saw this especially, the, the idea of being able to see with imagination through tragedy and through loss. One of the scenes that for me speaks so well from this movie is right after he lost his job. He came home discouraged, and I think on top of that, he also forget, forgot his daughter's birthday. So let's watch this film, this clip right here, and think about it underneath the lens of imagination. Hey. Oh, God. You're home, Marley. And until further notice. Well, I didn't think you were long for that job. Or any job, apparently. That's what makes our life together so exciting. Charity. This isn't the life I promised you. But I have everything I want. What about the magic? What do you call those two girls? Hey, you partners, look who moseyed into the corral. (laughs) What is that? Come here. Present for what? For my birthday. Your what? My birthday. It's not your birthday. <laughs> okay, I do have a present. But not just any present. Oh, no. The most amazing birthday present ever. 
This extraordinary machine was originally created by Leonardo da Vinci 400 years ago. But the blueprints have been lost for centuries until just last week on a stormy night when a sunken pirate ship washed up on the shores of Nantucket. They found skeletons and treasures, and the blueprints were recovered by none other than J.W. Mercantile. The blueprints crossed my desk very briefly, but I managed to commit them to memory, and if I have remembered correctly... Happy birthday, Caroline. This is a wishing machine. You tell it your wishes. And it keeps them safe until they come true. Even if you forget them. They're always there. Can I tell a wish? Step right up. Go ahead. I wish to marry Santa Claus. <laughs> that is a good wish. I wish for happiness like this forever. For you, and you, and for your father. Sorry, Aaron. Uh, I think that song was not original. I think we just found that out. <laughs> hope you got some, hope you got a cut. Uh, so this right here, this scene, exemplifies what P.T. Barnum, his incredible ability. He could have gotten stuck in that moment, a moment of loss and tragedy of losing his job, and, and he easily could have gotten stuck. But what he did was he saw what he had with him and the potential it held, and he created not only this gift for his daughter, but he created, created this magical moment for them to share, this redemptive moment that inspired him. And it also inspired him in that moment, you can see, to create that sense of wonder and imagination for the world to experience. I love how even in the sheets, you can almost envision a circus tent, right? Right there as the, as the lights were spinning around. This was a foreshadowing of how he would use his imagination in this world. And for us, for, it's really important for us to consider this, that imagination is a deeply spiritual ability. It's not just a creative ability. It's a deeply spiritual ability. Irish theologian Michael Paul Gallagher, he said this, Imagination is the spiritual anchor our soul needs. An anchor. A spiritual anchor. What, is, what does an anchor do? Well, an anchor holds a ship 
in the place it needs to be, the place where it can be safe, the place where it belongs. And without the anchor, a ship will just drift. It will just wander aimlessly. And what this theologian seems to be saying is imagination is for a follower of Jesus a spiritual anchor, something that holds us where we need to be, allows us to hold fast, to to hold our position, to be in a place of strength. And I think many of us, if we're living without imagination, we're living anchorless, that we are drifting through life. We're drifting through experiences. We're drifting through our situations, wondering where we belong. We drift through the mundane natures of our days with purposeless relationships and situations and experiences. But imagination wakes us up. It wakes us up from the mundane natures of the days, and it opens up this whole other world, a world of possibility. Jesus, he would often start some of his things when he would speak to people. He would say this. He'd say, for those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to hear, and then he would go on to speak. And for me, this past week, I was wondering what that would have been like for the original audience who would say, we can see, Jesus, we can hear you. Jesus was alluding to something different, the ability to see a different world, the ability to hear in a way that's different, the ability to walk through life with a deep spiritual imagination. For Jesus, he saw this world differently than other people did. And one of the things it seems like he did with his disciples, his students who followed him, he wanted them to see differently, see a different possible world that God could awaken and redeem in this world, to bring about hope where there is hopelessness, to bring about community when there is isolation, to bring about life where there was death. Jesus had this ability to see through these lens of imagination of what God could do. He took fishermen and began a movement. He took a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish and created a feast. He took a cross of death and redeemed all of life and gave freedom. That's in a type of imagination and agency that Jesus had. And I wonder, I wonder for us, the question, how is your spiritual imagination today? How much of our days are filled with the ability to dream about what God could do in and through our life? How much imagination do we have in our relationships, in our purpose, in our workplace, in our homes, in our friendships? How much imagination do you carry with you with this anticipation that life can be an adventure with Jesus? How, how much of our life is lived with a sense of wonder? My guess is that many of us walk through day in and day out, half awake, half-hearted, even if Jesus were to sit us down and spin a wish catcher and look us in the eyes and say, what do you dream about? My fear is that many of us would go, I don't know. Because we haven't lived with this sense of imagination. We don't have that anchor. But I think the love and the life of Jesus ignites imagination, the possibilities of what could be. And we need to have our imagination stirred of what this world could be. 
We need to pray that our imagination be lit for what God can do in this world. I almost hear God say to me often, maybe to us as a community, your prayers are not big enough. I want you to pray bigger prayers. I don't want you to settle for small living, small prayers, small hopes, small dreams. Dream bigger with me. Life is short. Wake up. Wake your soul up. Pray bigger prayers. Go for bigger dreams. Barnum, he saw the possibilities in every moment, but do you know where his imagination flourished the most? It was with people. He saw the possibilities in people. He saw the potential in people. Barnum didn't see people in a way in which the community had already, had already uh, pushed them aside, the names, the categories that they had thrown onto them. Barnum saw them differently. So and I think the reason why it started is because as a child, he was an orphan, and he was left alone. And there's this one scene where he stole a loaf of bread, ran around this building, and the store owner ran around the building on the other side, grabbed him, threw him down, grabbed the loaf of bread, and walked back to the store. And this woman who had the huge cloak over her face walked over to him, pulled out an apple, and gave it to him. But her face was very disfigured. She would have been deemed an oddity in the community and culture. But Barnum was shamed by everyone else, but was given grace by her. And you're, as you watch this film, you're, you're given this impression that that was a formative moment from him, that this set a course for him to see the goodness in people who have been deemed undesirable. And who else did that? Jesus. Jesus saw people through the lens of a gracious imagination. Jesus did this for all. He did this again and again and again. Jesus saw the potential locked beneath the surface. But especially, Jesus did this for the outcasts, the misfits, and for the overlooked. The ones who have learned to live in the shadows. Jesus went after them especially. When, the, when society shunned and shamed the lepers, Jesus touched them and restored them into community. When society treated women as inferior and as property, Jesus fought for their inclusion among the tribe of disciples that he lived and shared life with, that these women were participants and leaders in God's kingdom as well. When society saw children as a nuisance and as a distraction, Jesus brought them close and blessed them. When the prideful religious elites shunned those who were deemed sinners, Jesus went to where they were, went to where they were, and spoke and lived compassion for them. He loved them and brought them into freedom in knowing and following him. And I think this is one of the main lessons this, le this movie is trying to teach us. And it's said very clearly by uh, this critic. There's this critic who hated Barnum, hated what he was doing. He was kind of a snob critic there in New York, and he had disdain for what, the, what Barnum's museum was doing. Later on, he called a circus, which uh, Barnum embraced. And notice how he summarizes Barnum's gift in this clip. They caught the thugs who started the fire. I thought you'd like to know. I never liked your show, but I always thought the people did. They did. They do. 
Mind you, I wouldn't call it art. Of course not. But putting folks of all kinds on stage with you, all colors, shapes, sizes, presenting them as equals. Or another critic might have even called it a celebration of humanity. I would have liked that. Mm. Don't you love that phrase, a celebration of humanity? By him employing a company of human oddities and freaks, Barnum bestowed dignity on people who bore the scars of their family's rejections. He brought people out of the shadows and onto the stage. And of course, of course, the shadows in comparison to Jesus. The gospel is a truer celebration of humanity. Jesus celebrated the uniqueness in each person, not to have them conform to societal norm, but for them to find their own goodness that God was developing in and through them, their own humanity, who God created them to be. And Jesus, he grabbed people and placed them on God's stage of delight and in doing so gave them great purpose and dignity and honor. And for us, we, just, we are called to do the same. We're called to go into this world, find the outcasts, find those who learn to live in the shadows, to draw them into the goodness and delight of God so that they too could be released on the stage of God's purpose in this world. Act two, a warning. The real P.T. Barnum was not a perfect person. He was deeply, deeply flawed. And that, for me, was like the biggest barrier I had in enjoying this movie is because if you know anything about him, P.T. Barnum was pretty despicable. He was a known racist. He made his wealth off of objectifying people, and uh, he took fake news to legendary heights. Even after one of his oddities had died, this is an example, he, sh he sold tickets for the autopsy so that people could see. I mean, how despicable is that? Somehow, that didn't make the movie. Hugh Jackman decided to put on his polished veneers and tap dance right past that. But even in this character that is shown in this movie, uh, it gives us a warning. His story is the story of the American dream from rags to riches, from stealing for food to having great, great wealth. P.T. Barnum was scrappy. He was driven. He was someone full of ambition. He was a hustler. And this is not necessarily bad uh, because many of us, we're driven. We have ambition. We seek to hustle and get things done. But the $10,000 question is this. What fuels your ambition? What fuels your drive? For Barnum, he had a shadow side. Maybe he wanted to honor the social outcast like this movie is trying to depict and provide for his family and inspire people. But his ambition also bent towards himself. He had great insecurities. He had greed. He had a desire to prove himself. And you see this degradation in his virtue as this movie goes on and on. He starts overstepping the values that he began to live with. And he used money to prove that he was someone. But wealth wasn't enough uh, because the money that was made was made while he was a circus runner. And so he tried to become more and more popular, but having fame wasn't enough. He wanted to be accepted by the elites. 
But the circus wasn't going to do it because it was lowbrow entertainment. So what did he do? He found the most talented opera singer in all of Europe and brought, him, brought her to America to prove himself at a great risk. And, at, and because of that, he ended up becoming bankrupt. And his wife actually looked at him before this trip and asked the question, when is it going to be enough for you? You see, he was running from something, and it was all summed up in the voice of his father-in-law, who was an enemy in this story. And he said this to Barnum. He said, all of that fortune, and you're still the tailor's boy. His ambition was fueled to prove himself, and it was eating him alive, and it was destructive for everyone around him. And this is a warning for all of us. What fuels our drive, our ambition, our existence? What fuels our desire to have the perfect family? What fuels our desire to get to the next job, the next ring in the ladder? What fuels our drive to, to earn our right to have friendships in this one community? What fuels our drive is a really, really important question for us. And out of the goodness of God, Jesus is no stranger to this temptation. After Jesus' baptism, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted he was driven there for 40 days. And look at this in Luke 4. It says this. The devil said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is risen, written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all uh, kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, Jesus answered. It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him. He left Jesus till an opportune time. These temptations are all things that are common to humanity. These temptations are all different ways that you and I could, could have this shadow side to our ambition, the shadow side to the driving force in our life. You could almost whittle down these three temptations by these three different offerings. We have turned the stone into bread which is when you're starving, this is a reality. I would, I could do, if I could do anything to provide for myself. And this is a temptation that we have in our life of self-provision, not having to rely on God, to get behind the wheel and just take over, take, take over here. That is a temptation of common humanity. Another one is I will give you all authority. Just bow down to me and I will give you all the kingdoms. That's the temptation of power. We don't like being helpless. We don't like being dependent. Some of us are tempted to just to get white-knuckled in life and claim power. And the last temptation was jump from this temple and everyone will see you. Make a spectacle of yourself. Be known for that. That's the temptation of popularity and approval. And something that's really important, a writer, Henry Nouwen, wrote about these three different temptations. Oftentimes, we in our unique personhood will be tempted by one of these. So which are you tempted by most? Self-provision, power, or popularity? What drives you? 
And if this movie is trying to teach us something, if Jesus is uh, abstaining from these temptations, is trying to teach us something, is that all three of these will be toxic for your soul. It will be destructive for your community. Be careful of what's fueling you. Be careful of that. Because almost as you watch this movie, you're almost left with this question, what gain is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul, lose her soul? What is it if you were to actually achieve everything you wanted to and found yourself dry, empty, and soulless? Act three, a community of difference. Sometimes the most gracious things in our life come from loss. After Barnum returns home from this tour with this opera singer, he was broke, completely broke. He was disgraced by the rumors of an affair, and he arrived just enough time to watch his, his building burn down, the museum, the circus that he created. And at the rubbles where we saw that clip earlier, he was left with the reality that he had lost his identity. He had lost the standing that he earned, that the one that he uh, acquired through his life. And it actually is a great gift to him. Jesus spoke of this great reversal in Luke 9 when he said this, 9.24, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Once the persona comes crashing down, once he was disgraced, broke, and lost his building, he actually found himself. He hit rock bottom and went where people go when you hit rock bottom. He went to an empty bar in the middle of the day. Imagine boomers right there near the Y at 290 in the middle of the day. How depressing is that? I went on Yelp once to look at boomers. It's my favorite Yelp review about this bar called Boomers. It's, I have it memorized. It says this, belly up to the bar and face death. <laughs> Love it. So in this place where he had lost himself, he finds himself at this place of despair and something good breaks out. Watch this clip. Figured you'd end up here feeling sorry for yourself. If you've come to get paid, money's gone. All of it. Nothing Shut left to Shut up, give you. Barnum. You just don't get it. Our own mothers were ashamed of us. Hit us our whole lives. Then you pull us out of the shadows. And now you're giving up on us, too. Maybe you are a fraud. Maybe it was just about making a buck. But you gave us a real family. And the circus, that was our home. We want our home back. So one of the things that happens here is this beautiful reversal. The community that Barnum brought together, he actually needed. The misfits and the rejected people, the undesirables, Barnum actually became one of them. 
they all knew the tinge of, and pain of rejection. And because of this, this community enfolded him and reminded him of his truer identity. One that's not marked by fame. One that's not marked by wealth. One that's not marked by popularity. But he had created this family and he actually ended up needing it. As I said earlier, Jesus' life was spent finding people and giving them dignity. But Jesus did more than just restore people. Jesus created a family. He created a community. As theologian Scott McKnight once said, one of the things that Jesus did was to create a fellowship of difference, not a fellowship of sames. This is where Christian community can get it wrong is we end up trying to be like the same person. No, we're a fellowship of difference. Different people brought together into one family, united around one mission, around one Savior. And what is that mission? That mission is to include other people into the family of Jesus, restored by Jesus' goodness, by Jesus' life and Jesus' death. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to a higher standard than what we see in our world, of how divisive we can be, how excluding we can be. We live in a wall-building tendency in our culture, but we, empowered by Jesus, are called to genuinely love and value and befriend those who are different from you, and in doing so, to become the tangible expression of the love of Jesus. Christ-like love does not require us to have people have it all figured out before they, before they receive our love, or people who are spiritually mature before they're deserving of that love or friendship or respect. It doesn't require people to become like you, to be loved, to have the right to be loved. Christ-like love leads with love. Christ-like love leads with love. Christ-like love brings people together and welcomes them in, even in their differences. Yes, there's a time for calling brothers and sisters to a higher standard to truth, challenging them to, to live fully obedient to following Jesus. But here's the deal, that there's no separation between loving people and calling people to truth. They're not mutually exclusive. Christ-like love loves across barriers and not within them. And the divisive nature of our culture today is, is personified in this movie by these rabble-rousers who come in and burn this circus down. And throughout this movie, they are, they are increasingly discouraged and off-put by the inclusion of the others. It was threatening to them. They were threatened by the dignity that these people were given. And their refrain in this movie is, this is our town. This is our town. It doesn't belong to people like you. It's our town. You can hear Pharisees in Jesus' days. This is our community. Those people don't belong there. They're from a different ethnic group. They're, they're the sinners. They don't belong here. And you could even hear that within the church today. You hear it within our community today. Last week I was at the grocery store and I heard an argument between two people, and this white man was upset because this older black woman was riding a scooter through the store and got a little too close to him. In, an e in a heated exchange, he told her to get up and walk like the rest of us, and it escalated until I heard him say the words that I'm talking about. And he looked at her and said, go back to where you belong. What does that mean? As I was, sit, was watching this unfold, my heart was breaking. 
But it was breaking not because of this one ignorant man's interaction with this woman, but it was breaking because I hear that in so often in so many different words of looking at the other and saying, you go back to where you belong. Go back to your part of town where your people shop. Go, where does that mean in that situation? Did he mean go back to Africa? It makes no sense. Where do we belong? You know where we belong? We belong at the foot of the cross together. And here's the deal. When we come to the foot of the cross, there's no levels. There's no hierarchy. The foot of the cross is even in its level, and the invitation is for everyone, is to come, come at the foot of the cross as much as in need as anyone else. For the followers of Jesus, that sentiment makes no sense. You know where we belong? We belong empty-handed before Jesus. All of us who are our need of our hope, it leads us to the foot of the cross. And one of the greatest gifts of the foot of the cross is not only that we get to walk away with Jesus, but we get to walk away with a community of people who have been transformed by Jesus. That is the deeper celebration of humanity, is that we come together and Jesus sends us off not only with himself, but with a community of difference, not defined by the the lines of this world. And so just like the way this movie ends, the circus is destroyed, and so in a moment of inspiration, in a moment of imagination, Barnum says, we can't keep the circus here, but what if we take the circus on the road? And so town by town by town, the circus goes into this world to inspire people to a different world. Friends, that's the goal of the church. That's the goal of our church. We don't exist just to gather here together. We exist so that we can go into the city to awake people up to a spiritual imagination that this is not the end of the world and this is not the fullness of the world. But as we know and we follow Jesus, we get to walk in unity of purpose and mission and love to walk into this world with courage of creating a different world, a different kingdom, with Jesus as its king, with mercy and grace as its license, with hope as its destination.